This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. When the Supreme Court accepts a case for deliberation, it usually means it needs to sort out conflicting decisions at the lower court level, or means it's going in a new direction, or sometimes it's just unhappy with a rebellious lower court that's not listening to it. So when the Supreme Court this past year agreed to consider a school voucher case that's arisen in Maine. It's, the case is known as Carson v. Macon. The, the school choice movement quickly noticed because we've just had a school voucher case before the Supreme Court. Did the Supreme Court feel they had to do something here to a lower court? Well, we now have some hints from the Supreme Court because the case has been argued before the justices and they've asked some questions and that gives us some ideas from their cryptic comments or obscure questions as to what they're thinking, at least if you're an insider. Well, today we have an insider with us, Joshua Dunn, a professor at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. He does the legal beat for Education Next uh, and he can probably shed some light on this. Josh, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Well, Josh, Maine has one of the oldest voucher programs in the United States, but it's also one of the most obscure voucher programs. How did the actions of the state of Maine become a matter of dispute so consequential that it's arrived at the doorstep of the Supreme Court? So Maine is obviously a very rural state. And because it's a rural state, that means that many communities don't have enough students to actually have uh, a secondary school, a high school. And so for those students, Maine has provided under what it's called its tuitioning system, uh, vouchers for those students to attend another school of their choice, which can either be a public school or a private school. Now for well over a hundred years that students were allowed to uh, choose religious schools as well, uh, explicitly religious schools. And I think that's gonna be important when we discuss the Supreme Court's oral argument. Uh, but they, they changed their mind back in 1980 and then 1982, they passed a law excluding sectarian schools from being able to participate in this tuition, tuitioning system. Now, fast forward to uh, just a few years ago when the Supreme Court was uh, deciding Trinity Lutheran versus Comer. That was the case involving a Trinity, Trinity Lutheran Church in Columbia, Missouri that had applied for a state grant program based on the criteria for the grant program. They should have received one. They were one of the high, highest rated applicants, uh, but they were excluded from participating in, participating in the program because of the state's Blaine Amendment. The Supreme Court struck down the action of the state of Missouri uh, and said that that was discrimination based on religious status in violation of the free exercise clause. In that case, they did keep this distinction between status and use in place, or really it was a distinction that Chief Justice Roberts fo uh, focused on. Uh, nevertheless, after that case was decided, the Institute for Justice uh, found these two parents, or these two parents found, uh, two sets of parents found the Institute for Justice and decided to sue because they're, the, these parents, their children were, were forbidden from going or using the tuitioning system to go to a religious, religious school of their choice. That was in, in, in Montana, wasn't it? Are you talking about, or is that still in Missouri? 
Uh, so it, in Maine, what happened was in Tr Trinity Lutheran versus Comer, then led the Institute for Justice to file uh, Carson versus Macon. That's what really, that's where Carson versus Macon came from, because that decision, it was obvious to folks at the Institute for Justice that the Supreme Court uh, was going to be um, more receptive uh, to the arguments uh, based on religious discrimination under, under the Free Exercise Clause. And so then, of course, in between uh, Trinity Lutheran versus Comer and the oral argument in Carson versus Macon, we had the Espinoza decision, where once again, the Supreme Court kept the status versus use distinction in place, but still struck down the opinion of the Montana Supreme Court uh, based on the, state, the, the state's Blaine Amendment. Um, so this was really, uh, it was teed so, up. So, so yeah. it sounds to me like the status versus use is a key part of the story here. And to me, this is one of the most difficult things to uh, get into my head. What is the difference between, uh, I went to, I went to a, a, a Catholic school where my grandchildren are going to school this morning and we had a Christmas program and we saw the nativity scene and it is a Catholic church and they do celebrate Christmas and do all kinds of other, they have other religious activities. What's the difference between having a religious status and engaging in religious activity? Well, that, that, you're right. That's a very difficult distinction to, to make sense of. Uh, I think one way of describing it is that the status use distinction allowed the Supreme Court to have a seven to two majority in Trinity Lutheran um, versus Comer rather than a five to four majority. So by doing that, it allowed Chief Justice Roberts to get Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan to, jo to join the majority. But everyone recognized that this is a very tenuous distinction. And some of the other justices, Justice Gorsuch, for instance, argued that well, this really can't be sustained. Same thing was argued in some of the concurrences in, in uh, Espinoza decision, because in the end, religious people do religious things. Now, in Chief, what Chief Justice Roberts tried to say is, well, in some instances, people are being excluded from programs merely because they are religious, merely because they're religious. And then religious use might be something like actually engaging in religious instruction. Um, but again, it's... It, it, where, where you actually draw that line, it's not entirely clear. Uh, I think many people have thought, even people who disagreed with the support's decisions in Trinity Lutheran and Espinoza thought that the distinction is pretty unstable and wasn't likely to, to survive. And I think that's, that, that's likely going to be the outcome here in, in Carson versus Macon is that they'll, they'll have to eliminate that distinction, even though I think Chief Justice Roberts was still trying to maybe point at a possibility of, of there being a status use distinction here. Well, I mentioned in the opening observation that the lower court, uh, yeah, the, the federal court was at the first circuit, I believe the first yes. court actually uh, continued to draw this use versus status distinction. Um, were they on, on, on risky grounds when they did that, or was that that fair game on their? Uh, I think they were asking the Supreme Court to review their decisions. So the Maine won at trial, and then they won on appeal as well uh, when the parent, parents appealed. And interestingly, that the, the panel uh, that heard the case on appeal included Justice Souter, retired Supreme Court Justice Souter. 
Uh, and I, I think it was pretty clear that under Espinoza, they, Maine was going to have a hard time winning. Uh, I think the Supreme Court would have preferred if, this, if the lower courts had said, well, this really, uh, or at least Chief Justice Roberts would have preferred if the lower courts had said, well, this is really is discrim still discrimination based on religious status, then preventing them from having to, uh, to get involved. But of course, that's not what the lower courts did. They, the, the argument of the lower courts, and in particular, the appellate decision, well, uh, status is once again, just because you're religious, the, what Maine is doing is uh, preventing public funds from going to schools that are explicitly sectarian and make religious education a central part of what they do at the school. Um, well, actually, I think in, in the main government, uh, the Department of Education that administers this program actually says, okay, if you're a religious school, but you don't do anything religious, and we've got some religious schools out there that yep. are almost not religious anymore. They have a religious heritage, but that's not part of their current uh, program. Yes. So, uh, so actually in that case, there is sort of a distinction between- Oh, yes, yeah. And that, and, that caused and problems for Maine at oral argument. There were some of the justices who obviously thought that this kind of uh, picking and choosing among which schools were religious but not too religious was really a problem. I mean, under old establishment clause analysis, you would, you would call that an excessive entanglement right? <laughs> immediately. If, if the government is actually saying, well, yeah, you're, 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 re you're religious, but it's, uh, you wear it lightly, uh, so you're okay. Um, but you folks over there, you actually believe what your traditional doctrines say, so you, you can't participate. Um, that that obviously was a problem for uh, for for some of, some of the justices, and there were school even schools that wanted to participate, uh, who said we aren't going to uh, require students who come through the tuitioning system uh, to participate in chapel or religious uh, classes, and Maine still excluded them. They still excluded them because on their website they said something like. And this is a fairly liberal Episcopal school as well, theologically liberal, you would say, Episcopal school. They just said, well, chapel is a, a central part of what we do at the school. So because that was on their website, uh, Maine said you, they can't participate. But there were other religious school, schools, historically religious schools, that they said, well, you're okay. Um, because you basically, maybe it's kind of like Harvard uh, that used to be religious, but it's, it would be very difficult to describe it. Um, uh, as uh, Puritan uh, anymore, um, at least in some respects. Well, Josh, in passing, you made a comment there that was intriguing. You said that Justice Souter was involved in this case somehow, mm -hmm. even though he is no longer on the Supreme Court. What, what's, what's that story? Right. So retired justices can still uh, uh, sit on panels. Uh, and I think because Justice Souter lives in New Hampshire, in the first circuit, that's where he would be able to sit on, uh, on cases. And I think they can even do it on, on uh, at the district court level. But most of them retired justices, if they're going to do this, uh, they'll do it uh, at, the, at the appellate level. Now, it doesn't happen all that often because we just haven't had a lot, or at least recently, it hasn't happened all that often because most of the justices who um, uh, have left the court have left because uh, they died <laughs> um, and so there hasn't been that that opportunity for them 
But that is something that retired justices can do in the same way that emeritus justices, uh, appellate uh, court justice can still sit on cases as well. So is that sort of, did his uh, participation sort of, was that an effort by the First Circuit to sort of give some heft to their decision? So it could be. I don't know how he was selected for it, though, if this was done by lottery or if whoever, say, the presiding judge of the First Circuit is uh, so, uh, actually personally selected the, the, the judges who were going to, to sit on the panel. Uh, I do think you could say, though, that he was trying to send a message to his, his uh, former colleagues on the Supreme Court. Um, but I think, he, I think Justice Souter knew that the, 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 the opinion that he joined was likely to, to be struck down uh, and, and not survive. Uh, but we'll, we'll still have to see, but I think that's, I, I think that's the reasonable conclusion after, after Laura. Well, what Laura, what Laura. are the questions that the, or comments that the justices made that lead you to that conclusion that uh, this, this is uh, gonna go down this, uh, this uh, ruling in, in- Right, so if you just, if you look at the conserv what we think of as the conservative justices, uh, and their questions to both the attorney for the Institute for Justice, the and then the, I think deputy solicitor general for uh, for Maine or attorney general for Maine, and then there's a deputy solicitor general for the United States that was also defending uh, Maine, uh, the Maine's Maine's policy. Uh, it was pretty clear that they were very skeptical of this. I actually think that the only hope for Maine is if the Supreme Court were to dismiss the case uh, for and say that the parents don't have standing. Um, because there's this question about some of the, the schools that the parents who were part of the lawsuit, where they send their children, uh, it's not clear that they would participate in the, in, in the program anyway, uh, that they would accept the government money because they might not want to accept whatever strings might come along with it. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen, but Justice Thomas, actually, that was the very first question that was asked at oral argument was about whether or not the parents actually have standing. Well, what's the argument that the plaintiffs made when th that question was posed? How did they say claim that they did have standing? So uh, there, there were two things. Uh, one, the, the, the uh, attorney for the Institute uh, for Justice said, uh, even if these schools don't accept it, the, the mere fact of, of this discrimination uh, against the constitutional right uh, means that the court will just normally decides the case. Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing they argued is that there are a lot of schools that would probably like to participate, but they've been excluded for quite some time uh, because of this policy. So we don't know what options would actually be available uh, to the parents in the absence of this uh, discrimination. Uh, so again, I think that's it's, it's unlikely that the court will dismiss based on lack of standing, but I think that actually is Maine's, Maine's best, best hope. Well, of course, if, if, if you can't uh, file a lawsuit unless you actually had been in a school, which you, and you can never apply to a school like this, that would almost mean that this provision of the main law could never be challenged. Exactly. Right. That's, that's part of the problem. A little uh, bit like that abortion case in Texas that there. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so it, it would, it would uh, simply allow the state to, uh, to carry on as it has, and no one would ever have uh, a actual uh, grounds for, for bringing a lawsuit. Uh, they could never show uh, harm because they were never actually, uh, yeah, uh, even attempted to enroll in a qualifying school that both matched their religious preferences and Maine's policies. 
Well, there are three liberal justices on the court. There's only only three, actually, that are clearly defined as liberals at this point, given the appointments of Kavanaugh and Barrett. Uh, so what were the questions that they were posing? What was the line of, of thinking that they were? Uh, so, yeah, um, so Ju Justice Breyer and then also Ju Justice Kagan, uh, but uh, particularly Justice Breyer, his concern was about the potential for conflict uh, that could arise with government's funding of religion. Uh, the Institute for Justice's argument is that well, this actually isn't government funding of religion, it's funding parents. And so uh, since it's not going directly to a school, it's just going to a parent and then they decide where to spend it, that severs the relationship between the government funding and uh, religion. Uh, uh, but Ju Justice Breyer is concerned that there would be uh, anger that could result if someone participates in the tuitioning program and then someone then sends their ch uh, child to um, a school that yeah, adheres to uh, traditional uh, sexual ethics uh, that then run afoul of the general ethos of Maine, which after all has a, uh, a statute on the books that prevents discrimination against individuals based on, based on sexual orientation. Although there is an exception, and this also came up in the case, an exception for religious institutions. Um, so, uh, but he's just, that was that was his primary concern. Uh, really, Justice Kagan had the same concern, and what she wanted to argue was that there should just be some play in the joints, as she described it, for states uh, to be able to make these distinctions, so that they don't end up having to fund things that they find uh, extremely di disagreeable, or that could make uh, again most mo most uh, or a majority of people angry. Well, one of the issues that comes up, especially if you have a referendum on something like this, it always comes up is, well, how about these Islamic schools that might be teaching right. terrorists? Uh, is right. the government actually going to uh, give uh, parents a voucher to go to such a school? Uh, so th some there were similar questions that came up at oral argument, because one of the things that was raised was, well, under the main law, you could actually could have, say, a white supremacy school, but because it's not religious, <laughs> it would still satisfy um, the ma Maine's requirements. Uh, the response of the attorney representing Maine was, well, if something like that were to happen, the legislature would immediately address it. Um, but there was another question, which is, well, what if you have a school that just really hates religion? Uh, and they say, we, we, are, we, we are just hostile to religion. Would they be excluded from the program? And under the law, no, they wouldn't be. And, but the, you, had this, you had that response uh, from Maine, which was that, well, if, if something like that were to happen, we would, we would address that through the legislative process very quickly. So then there, there would be these uh, questions, uh, uh, I think, that would arise, though, you know, with um, uh, perhaps some, some of these schools there, or the, the possibility that's always raised with, uh, with, uh, with, with Muslim schools. Um, and in that circumstance, I don't know <laughs> actually what, what, what would happen. Um, well, some of these justices have well-defined positions. We sort of know where they're coming from, but we've got two new ones. We have Kavanaugh, we have Barrett. Did we get any hints as to their thinking from the questions and comments they made? Uh, yeah, so I think both of them, but in particular Kavanaugh, he was the one who was obviously most skeptical uh, of the two. And I, that doesn't mean that Barrett wasn't. I think that Barrett, she, she just did, 
what uh, wasn't as involved in the oral argument as, as Kavanaugh was. But when she did interject and ask questions, I think they, they pointed in uh, the direction of she's, she, she is very suspicious of Maine's, uh, Maine's policy. But Kavanaugh, it's pretty clear that he thinks, uh, it, again, at least based on oral argument, or he's very concerned, I think we can say with confidence, that this really does amount to uh, religious discrimination in, in violation of the, of the free exercise clause. And sometimes you saw Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh both kind of uh, taking turns, uh, building on questions that the other had asked, uh, pushing in, in, in that direction. Um, so I, I think that everything that we've seen indicates that those, those two justices are, uh, are not gonna be sympathetic to Maine and their likely vote to, to, to strike down the law. I, I think the, the real question is, can Chief Justice Roberts still fashion some status use distinction that could, that could satisfy the, the rest of the majority on the court? And um, I don't know that he can. Um, they don't need his vote now. <laughs> um, so, and he doesn't like five to four votes. So I think there's a kind of almost gravity. Right? He, yeah, if, you have the, if you have the other five conservative justices that vote to strike down Maine's, uh, Maine's policy and law, and they want to eliminate the status versus use distinction, I, I think that Chief Justice Roberts goes along with them. Um, just well, well you know, he, credibility he, could, he could indicate right after oral right. argument, I think the, the, the vote, and uh, it's not a final vote, but it's a preliminary right. vote, and the, uh, the Chief Justice could vote with the conservatives, uh, giving it a 6 mm -hmm. Majority, and then because he is chief justice, he can assign himself the responsibility for writing the opinion. So, is he going to write the opinion here? He could. I think the problem is he has to remain maintain comedy with his colleagues as well. And so, if he were to if he were to write an, an opinion that really did not capture the preferences of five in the majority, then I think what would happen is that they would simply object and then you would end up with a you know a, 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 a different majority and maybe he would he would draft a again, concurring slash dissenting dissenting opinion uh but that that is a possibility that is a possibility uh and i think he did that in some of these other cases like the trinity lutheran case the uh, espinoza case um yeah he he maintained control of of both of those and I don't know that he can do that now. Um, now, let's see, in the Espinoza case, had we already had the Barrett appointment on, on, the, uh, on no, the- No, no, yeah, because that was, I think, the summer before Barrett's. Uh, was it the summer or was it 2019? Yeah, I, maybe it yeah, was- No, it's, it's 2020, yeah. it's summer yeah, 2020, yeah. but That's she right. doesn't join until yeah. the fall, right? Right, right. So the, the court has made a move since that yes. Montana case which you're saying is enough now to, to move the, uh, the reasoning of the court to forget about status versus use. That's, uh, that's, a, that's a weak read to lean on and uh, they're gonna abandon that. And that's, that's now, what I think. Some people say that the Supreme Court's reasoning on uh, religious, uh, religion in the schools has changed fundamentally since Nyquist back in the 1970s. So in 50 mm -hmm. years, we have gone 
all the way from saying you can't give money to religious schools to you have to give money to religious schools. That's a huge 100% turnaround. Yes, and I think it what it what it points to is the increased importance of the free exercise clause. Um, now, some of this, of course, you have Zellman versus Simmons-Harris, which says then under the establishment clause that vouchers are not unconstitutional. Uh, but what we've really seen in the last seven to 10 years is an increased focus on free exercise claims by the, by the Supreme Court. And that's where the and for a long time, that was just reversed. The, the free exercise clause was, you wouldn't say it was forgotten, but there wasn't a whole lot of litigation under the free exercise clause. There weren't really a lot of uh, significant free exercise cases decided by the Supreme Court, you know, employment division versus Smith um, being the most important of the last, uh, you know, 30 to 50 years, you would, you would say. Uh, but by pl placing the emphasis on the, on the free exercise clause, that has, I think, strengthened the, the hand of those who, who want these kinds of opportunities uh, for, for parents to, to send their kids to uh, a religious school of their choice, or whatever school, uh, school of their choice, um, in a way that the Establishment Clause did not allow for. And some of that was just because of the Supreme Court's Establishment Clause jurisprudence, which was so muddled, but overall, you would say, was tilted against religious accommodations. Um, you know, the lemon tests uh, was overall I, I, uh, a test that was not sympathetic to the claims of, uh, of rel religious adherence. And after all, that's why many people bringing what you would call religious claims actually started looking, moving in other directions. For instance, free speech. They would try to bring free speech claims rather than uh, the establishment clause claims. And I think something similar has happened with the free exercise clause. They've spotted an opportunity identified an opportunity um, to, uh, to, to have some success uh, in, in a space that uh, otherwise they wouldn't have, a, have success in with the, with the establishment clause. Well, so, uh, you know, this is, this is pretty fascinating, but how far will this go? Because you can imagine, uh, okay, so now we have charter schools, we have secular mm -hmm. charter schools, if you're giving money to secular charter schools and there's a religious charter school, given this, uh, this ruling that says you cannot discriminate against religion when you're giving money to secular institutions, doesn't this mean that we now will have religious charter schools? Uh, I think that's a distinct possibility. And that's in fact, the scenario that Justice Breyer raised in his dissents in Espinoza. Uh, he said, if you, if you look at uh, the, the, the majority's reasoning, you can't really stop it where Chief Justice Roberts wants to stop it. He says, well, there's an otherwise available benefit. And if you exclude religious adherence from participating in this otherwise available benefit, then that amounts to a violation of the free exercise clause. And so he raised this possibility for, for him a specter of religious charter schools. So I think uh, there are two kinds you could see. Certainly, if there is a religious institution that wants to have a charter school, and they say, we, we, we just want to serve the community. Uh, so we aren't going to engage in any religious indoctrination. This is just a, a service to, uh, to the community. There's no way, I think, that under the precedence that we have now, that they could be excluded. And then I think it would be difficult to exclude them 
at least based on the court's reasoning, I mean, it has to be, I think it would certainly end up before the court. It would be difficult to exclude religious institutions that would want to have reli explicitly religious charter schools that would engage in religious instruction. Um, well, isn't know, that what right. Justice Roberts was worried about when he came up with this use status distinction was otherwise he doesn't know where to draw the line. I think that's part of what I think that's part of what he was uh, part of what he was doing. Um, but in the end, it, I, I, I think it's just a, it's it is such a you called it a thin reed. <laughs> it was going to be difficult to hold this back. Uh, but I, the real problem is, is when you look at what Missouri did uh, in uh, Trinity Lutheran versus Comer, it was pretty clear that that did violate uh, basic free exercise doctrine. That's why they that's why they got seven votes. But as soon as you, almost as soon as you admit that in Trinity Lutheran versus Comer, it I don't want to say it's complete path dependency, <laughs> but but it's it's very difficult to see where you can veer off <laughs> once you're on this path. Well, a lot happens depending on who's on the Supreme Court, as we all know. Yep. So, uh, but I don't think we've seen the last decision in this uh, in this arena. There's more to come. Oh no, yeah, there's there there will be there will be plenty more, and I, I'm certain that there are already um, uh, public interest law firms uh, that are scouting for. The, the best plaintiffs um, to bring bring these bring these cases. Uh, in fact, there's a, there's a case out of Maryland uh, that, although this case could decide that issue, um, but there's a case out of Maryland. There's one in Vermont. It's not clear Vermont is going to actually appeal. I don't think that they are. But um, so even if the Supreme Court were decide to to, to dismiss uh, based on lack of standing, there's no way they're going to avoid this particular issue. And then these other issues. Are inevitably gonna, going to going to come before the court. Well, thank you very much for elucidating this uh, decision that's going to emerge. I assume it's going to be uh, June at the latest, maybe even earlier. Yeah, so June at the latest. Uh, but it, the, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a decision earlier, just just because there's a consensus among the justices uh, in the majority about what they, they want to do. Uh, so, you know, this, this, I think this one is going to end up being easier for the court, uh, say compared to the Mississippi abortion uh, clinic case. <laughs> that, that, that one, that's, a, that's, a June, that's definitely a June decision if I, if I had to put money on it. Uh, but this one you, uh, might be June, but it wouldn't be surprising to see it uh, be handed down earlier. Well, thanks uh, for joining me today on the Education Exchange, uh, Joshua. Thanks for having me again. It's great to see you, Paul. I've been speaking with Joshua Dunn, Professor of Political Science at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. He's the author of the well-known study of the controversial school finance case in Kansas City, Missouri. I thank you all for joining me today on the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. Please join me every Monday at noon Eastern time for a new education exchange podcast released on the Education Next website.